Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogony Saturdays. Today is Saturday, March 28th, 2015. Here we shall be continuing our presentation of our essays written in 2007 and 2008 and entitled Classical Records and German Origins. These essays are in six parts. This is number two. In our first segment of these presentations, among other things, we sought to establish the fact that the people whom the Greeks had later called Scythians were called Chimerians early on, because that is the Hellenized version of what the, the Assyrians had called them. And they were later called Sake, because that is the Hellenized version of what the Persians had later called them, where the multilingual Eastern inscriptions show that they were all one and the same people, the Chimerians, the Sake, and various names they had later on. This is important to recognize, because the Chimerians, or Chimeroi in Greek, were called that in Greek because that is how the Greeks represented what we may say in English as Cymru. This name Cymru is a guttural representation of the word spelled Humri, actually H-U-U-M-R-I, or some slight variation of that, from the Assyrian letters for the bit Humri or bit Humria, which was what the Assyrians in their inscriptions had called the Israelites whom they were deporting to the regions of the north after their king, who we know from the King James Version as Amri. In Assyrian inscriptions, as early as the reign of Shalmanesar II, I almost said three. I'm sorry, who ruled Assyria from about 845 to 824 BC, we see references to Amri. One in particular, which is how we know that this is definitely the king that it refers to, where the Israelite king Jehu is called Jehu, son of Amri. The name Amri in Assyrian, in that inscription being the same word, Humri. We see that in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, published at Princeton University Press in 1969 on page 280. Of course, Jehu, as a successor to King Amri, was the fourth king from Amri, ascending to the throne in Samaria perhaps 33 years after Amri had died. In the meantime, we had Ahab and two of his sons as kings. Amri clearly left an impression upon the Assyrians of his time. For them, too, from the time of Amri forward, called the Israelite kingdom after him the house of Amri, or the Bit Qumri. Yehu, or Jehu, was not even a son of Amri in the patriarchal sense, 
but had rather established a new dynasty of his own after extinguishing all the sons of Ahab, the son of Omri. Nevertheless, the name of Omri stuck to Israel so far as the Assyrians were concerned. In a later inscription of the Assyrian king, Adad Nirari III, who ruled Assyria from about 811 down to 683 BC, we read of his dominions to the east as far as the great sea of the rising sun. And then we read of his dominions to the west from the banks of the Euphrates, the country of the Hittites, Amuru country in its full extent, which was the land of the Amorites. Tyre, Sidon, Israel, Edom, Palestine, as far as the shore of the great sea of the setting sun, meaning the Mediterranean, of course. I made them submit all to my feet, imposing upon them tribute. That's from Ancient Near Eastern Texts, page 281. Where the translation has Israel, it is pointed out by the editors that the original text has Humri. Throughout the many surviving inscriptions of Shalmanesar II, Adad Narari III, Tiglath Pileser III, whom we know from the Bible, Sargon II, who we know from the Bible, the rulers of, the Assyri of Assyria all the way down to 705 BC. Throughout all of their inscriptions, the Israelites being taken into captivity, which the Bible and those inscriptions both record in the days of Tiglath-Pileser, Sargon II, and Sennacherib, were identified as the Bit Humria. It is noted in the academic notes attached to the inscriptions, that Bit Humria refers to the land of Amri, which was the Assyrian name for ancient Israel, taken from the name of the king. In conjunction with this, as we established last week, dating Homer is important because the first mentions of the Kimaroi are in Homer's writing in the West. And we established that Homer did not write until several decades after, perhaps five or six decades after the Assyrian relocation of the Israelites. Tracing the route of the Cimmerians in the 7th century BC, it is easy to see that the Israelites, by the name which the Assyrians called them, must have indeed been those very Cimmerians. Before proceeding with part two of our presentation, there are a few things left to clarify concerning the Cimmerians. And for that, we will quote a couple of paragraphs which were written for our presentation of Hosea chapters 1 and 2, given here on January 27, 2012. Although I will add some additional comments, I'm basically quoting my Hosea presentation. Many Israelite identity commentators, especially in British Israel, 
point out how fitting it is that the name of the whore that Hosea chose to marry was named Gomer. And they assume that the Saxons, who were descended from the Israelite Scythians, had likewise joined themselves to the Celts, who are said to have descended from the Cimmerians, whom Josephus mistakenly identified as descendants of the Japhethite Gomer, who is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. The truth is a little more complex than that, and Josephus was wrong in his identification, which many in British Israel and among mainstream commentators and historians as well have since followed. The actual historical portions of Josephus are excellent. They are invaluable. However, where Josephus offers interpretations of the ancient scriptures from before the time of the Second Temple, he is following the traditions of the Pharisees, and many of them are not good. So many commentators assert, following the error of Josephus, that the Celts are sprung from Gomer because of the similarities in the consonants of the names Gomer and Kimaroy. And many of the so-called Celts did indeed descend from the Cimmerians. However, many others descended from the Phoenicians, who arrived in Western Europe long before the Cimmerians, perhaps a thousand years before, in many circumstances. Yet the Kimmeroi are clearly the Cymri or Humri, and, and that um, transition from the Assyrian letter H to the English letters KH, there are other examples of in the geography of Mesopotamia in modern times. For instance, the river Huber, spelled H-U-B-U-R, when the name is transliterated from Assyrian into English, is on our modern maps called the river Kerper, K-U-R-P-U-R. Huber became Kerper. The letter H has a very guttural sound in Assyrian and often represented in other languages it is a K or a KH. So it's not a big stretch from Humri to Cymri because that's more like the Assyrians supposedly would have pronounced it. And we see that in the names in topography in Mesopotamia today, seeing how those names are spelled today and how they were spelled by the Assyrians in their inscriptions. So the Kimmeroi are clearly the Cymri of the Assyrian inscriptions and not Gomer. There is no tribe which can be identified as Kimmeroi or Cymri in secular records at all until after the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites. And no Cymri existed before 
the deportations of the Israelites, except in Assyrian deportations, and I'm sorry, in Assyrian inscriptions relating to the House of Amri in Palestine. Even other Assyrian words, which are imagined by mainstream scholars to refer to the Chimerians, and one of those words is a late word, Gimiri, which is said in many sources to mean only the tribes. Even those Assyrian words, that Assyrian word in particular, does not appear at all in any Assyrian inscription until the time of Esarhaddon, which is approximately 681 B.C. That's when that word first appears in inscriptions. That's at least 40 years after perhaps 50 years after the first deportations of Israelites to those regions where the Scythians and Chimerians are later found. By that time, by the time of Esar Hadan, the name of Bit Humri, or the House of Amri, seems to have disappeared from those inscriptions because the nation of Israel in Palestine was already decimated and most of it carted away to Assyria. So there was no reason to mention the Bit Humri anymore. Later, on the Behistun rock, that word Gemiri, in the Babylonian version, stands for Sake in the Persian version. The, the Behistun rock also being a trilingual inscription. If there is a tribe identifiable by the Genesis 10 name of Gomer, then they are wanting in inscriptions for many centuries. To be fair, none of these tribes of Mesopotamia at the time of the Assyrians can be readily associated with the Jepethite Gomer because for 22 centuries, as far as I've ever seen, there is no intermediary evidence which would support such an assertion that the tribe of Gomer had kept that name. Gomer is mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and in Chronicles where the genealogies are repeated. But not at all again until we see him allied with Togarma, Ashkenaz, and other tribes which are said to be confederated against the children of Israel in the last days, described in Ezekiel chapter 38. Therefore, we find the nations aligned against Israel in the last days, and Gomer should be among them. And we know that they cannot be among the Saxons and Celts, who are biblical Israel. Yet, while Ezekiel identified these people, as the Jepethite tribe of Gomer, that does not mean, because Ezekiel wrote the word as a part of prophecy, that does not mean that they were identified by that ancient name historically. Other Genesis 10 tribes were called by their Genesis 10 names in the days of the prophets, but those tribes themselves were not still using those names. A perfect example of that is Mitzrayim. Another example is Cush. Those people weren't using those names when the prophets were using them in the 6th and 7th centuries BC 
the Egyptians were not known as Mitzrayim at that late period of history. Historically, they were known as Egyptians. They weren't known as Mitzrayim. Ancient identifications of Gomer with the Cimmerians are based only on the similarity of the names. However, identifications of the Humri or Qumri with the Cimmerians are based on not only the likeness of the name, but also the location of the people where they originated and the actual historical records of their exploits. In addition to this are the records of the Hebrew prophets such as Isaiah, who presaged those exploits. I'm going to read a short article from an unlikely source, the article concerning ancient Nineveh, which is found at Wikipedia. In Isaiah chapter 10, chapter 14, we see prophecies that the children of Israel are going to engage in the punishment by which Yahweh would punish Assyria. The Wikipedia article says, Nineveh is an ancient Mesopotamian city on the eastern bank of the Tigris River and capital of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. It was the largest city in the world for some 50 years until, after a bitter period of civil war in Assyria itself, it was sacked by an, and, and this is the author of the Wikipedia article's assessment. He doesn't understand it. He's just stating the facts. And this is pretty, actually pretty decent. By an unusual coalition of former subject peoples, the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Chaldeans, the Scythians, and the Chimerians in 612 B.C. There's a little sentence here about the description of the situation of Nineveh, and that's the end of the article. It's quite short. So we see that even established Mainstream historical sources identify the Chimerians as once having been subject peoples of the Assyrians, the Qumri. Well, when the Assyrians use the word, it refers to the Israelites, the bit Qumri. It doesn't refer to Gomer. So the people that identify the Chimerians as Gomer ever since Josephus, they're just wrong. The Chimerians are Israel, former subject peoples of the Assyrians. Wikipedia, the Wikipedia article, they don't, they're telling the truth in, in this instance, but they don't even understand the consequences of what they're saying. They're identifying the Chimerians as the Qumri as Israel. We also see that at least some of the Chimerians remained in Mesopotamia until the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC. This is found in the inscriptions. The Chimerians are certainly the Qumri, who may or may not have been identified as Gimiri in the later time of Esar Hadan and Sennacherib. If Gimiri is simply from a word which means the tribes. That's fine. But 
the Chimerians of the Cymry, because the word Gemiri doesn't appear in inscriptions until the time of Esar Hadan. But the Greeks, by that time, already know the invasions of the Cymri or the Kimeroi into Lydia and Ionia, and they already are familiar with the name by that time. So Kimeroi must come from Cymri, I would argue, and not from the word Gimiri, which came along later on. E. Raymond Kapp, in his Assyrian deportations writings, he, he came up with linguistic, valid linguistic articles, um, arguments, I should say, as to why the Kimeroi were not the Gimiri why the name Chimerians was not cognate to the word Gemiri, and they were fine, but I won't repeat them here. I don't need to. With this, we will commence with the second part of our original series of essays, Classical Records and German Origins, Part 2. With this, we shall continue our presentation on the Chimerians where we must also, by necessity, discuss the Galatahi and the Scythians. And we assert that all three names belong to the same people at diverse times. In preparation for writing his histories, Herodotus had traveled widely, actually visiting many of the places which he wrote about. He visited Egypt. He visited Tyre. He visited the Danube River, Istria. One of the places that he visited was Istria, a Malaysian colony on the, on the Danube River, which bordered upon the Scythians, as Theodorus Siculus explains in Book 19 of his Library of History where Herodotus undoubtedly gained much of his knowledge of the Scythians and of the Ister, which is the ancient Greek name for the Danube and the region through which the river runs. In order to show that Herodotus's remarks concerning Istria are indeed historical, we shall cite Diodorus Siculus, where he is writing in a slightly later period, of the third of the successor wars. They were wars which were fought among the Greeks for control of the various parts of Alexander's empire. Regarding the years 314 to 313 BC, Theodorus says in Book 19, Chapter 73, of his library of history, that when the activities of this year had come to an end, Theophrastus obtained the archonship in Athens, and Marcus Publius and Gaius Sulpicius—I'm sorry, Gaius Sulpicius—became consuls in Rome. While these were in office, the people of Calantia who lived on the left side of the Pontus. The Pontus was, the word for the, was a word for the Black Sea. It was the general word for sea. It was the Pontus Euxenus. It, it, um, 
was when the Greeks said the, the Pontus, it meant the sea, but it meant the Black Sea. On the left side of the Pontus refers to the left-hand shore as one enters the Black Sea through the Bosporus from the Mediterranean. So that would be the side which the Danube River empties into, right? So Istria was on at the mouth of the Danube, and Calantia was on that side. Well, these were in office, the people of Calantia, who lived on the left side of the Pontus, and who were subject to a garrison that had been sent by Lysimachus, drove out this garrison and made an effort to gain autonomy. In like manner, they freed the city of the Istrians and other neighboring cities and formed an alliance with them, binding them to fight together against the prince, meaning Lysimachus. They, brought, they also brought into the alliance those of the Thracians and Scythians, whose lands bordered upon their own, so that the whole was a union that had weight and could offer battle with strong forces. This, of course, describes a period 130 years after the time of Herodotus, but it establishes as historicity. It establishes the historicity of the assertions concerning the presence of the Scythians here in Europe at this time in relation to Istria. Describing the Danube, Herodotus called it one of the great Scythian rivers, considering the land north of the Danube to be Scythia. And he mentions that there are five notable Scythian rivers which empty into the Danube from the north in the histories, book four, paragraphs 48 and 51. And we are going to read them. They're not very long. First with 448. The Ister, the greatest of all rivers which we know, flows with the same volume in summer and winter. It is the most westerly Scythian river of all and the greatest because other rivers are its tributaries. Those that make it great, five flowing through the Scythian country, are these, the river called by the Scythians Porada, and by the Greeks Pyretus. And besides these are Tiarantus, the Araris, the Naparis, and Yordesis. The first named of these rivers is a great flowing stream east and uniting its waters with the Ister. I'm sorry, a great stream flowing east and uniting its waters with the Ister. That would be the Poratus. The second, the Tiarantus, is more westerly and smaller. The Araras, Napiris, and Ordesis flow between these two and pour their waters into the Ister. The Parada is certainly the modern Prut, as Herodotus describes it. The modern Prut River flows through modern Romania. The Perseus, Perseus Project at the University of Chicago, from which we obtained 
this text of Herodotus, comparing it to the translation we have in Rawlinson's version, also makes the same identification that the parada is the prut, P-R-U-T, sometimes it's spelled on maps, P-R-U-T-H. Because of the point with the prut, mentioned first in Herodotus's list of tributaries to the Danube in Scythia, because of the point where the Prut empties into the Danube, the other rivers must all be west of the Prut, as Herodotus has described here. We don't know the exact location of the other four rivers he had in mind, since the Danube has many tributaries feeding it from the north. We don't know exactly which four he had in mind. We can only speculate. But counting five tributaries along the Danube, starting with the Prud, we end up in central Hungary. This picture is important. This picture of Scythia is important in identifying the Scythians with the Germans for the simple reason that when we arrive at Tacitus 500 years later, there are no Scythians in Tacitus. These people in, in Europe, these people are all called Germans. They are all Germania. And the Germans inhabit all the way to the to Istria, to the mouth of the Danube on the Black Sea. Tacitus considered it all Germania. From Herodotus's The Histories, Book 4, Paragraph 51, one of the rivers of the Scythians, then, is the Ister. The next is the Tiris, which comes from the north. This is not a tributary of the Danube. That's why it's described separately. Flowing at first out of a great lake, which is the boundary between the Scythian and the Nurian countries. At the mouth of the river, there is a settlement of Greeks who are called Tirite or Tiritahi. The Tyrus River is known from many later historians, and it is the Denister today. And it runs south to eastern Moldova, which is very close to the border of Ukraine. And it empties into the Black Sea, very close to modern Odessa. So Herodotus is describing a different part of Scythia when he talks about the Tyrus, because now he's moved east to the area north of the Black Sea, where we find the Ukraine today. Therefore, in the time of Herodotus, this establishes that the Greeks had settlements not only on the Black Sea as far north as the Danube, where Istria was. They had settlements on the Black Sea, <coughs> excuse me, as far north as Odessa. This is the, I'm sorry, the historian spoke of the land north of the Danube, 
which was later known to the Romans as Germania, in this manner. As regards the region lying north of this country, which, which describes, which is a reference to Thrace, no one can say with any certainty what men inhabit it. Now Thrace, the border of Thrace was the Danube, generally speaking. It appears that you no sooner cross the Ister, the Danube, than you enter on an interminable wilderness. Now, Herodotus was there personally. He saw this. He visited Istria sometime around 450 B.C. George Rawlinson made a note here of the land which Herodotus was talking about, counting those same tributaries, and his note says, Hungary and Austria. Now, Hungary and Austria, of course, are later names of political divisions of the land which the Greeks had known as Galatia, or, or the land of the Galatahi later, and, and the Romans knew as Germania. Hungary and Austria are what are being referred to here. We will establish the certainty of this later throughout these essays. Back to Herodotus, after he mentions that the land north of the Danube is an interminable wilderness, he says, the only people of whom I can hear as dwelling beyond the Ister are the race named Siganahi who wear, they say, a dress like the Medes, and have horses which are covered entirely with a coat of shaggy hair, five fingers in length, meaning the hair was quite long. They, meaning the horses, because some people have mistaken this as a description of the people, but no, Herodotus is describing the horses. They are a small breed, flat-nosed, and not strong enough to bear men on their backs. But when yoked to chariots, they are among the swiftest known, which is the reason why the people of that country use chariots. Now, now a professor like George Rawlinson would give his book to a student to write the index. When you check the index to George Rawlinson's translation of Herodotus, you'll see that that description is mistaken by somebody who made the index to refer to the people and not the horses. And some so-called scholars have followed that. But Herodotus, when he says a small breed and flat-nosed, is talking about the horses. Their borders, talking about the Siganahi, reach down almost to the Aneti upon the Adriatic Sea. And they call themselves colonists of the Medes. But how they can be colonists of the Medes, I, for my part, cannot imagine. Still, nothing is impossible in the long lapse of ages. Sigane, or Siganahi, 
is the name which the Ligurians, who dwell above Massilia, give to traders. While among the, the Cyprians, the word means spears. It may be just a similar-sounding but unrelated word. According to the account which the Thracians give, the country beyond the Ister, north of the Danube, is possessed by bees, on account of which it is impossible to penetrate further. But in this they seem to me to say what has no likelihood, for it is certain that those creatures are very impatient of cold, meaning the bees. Rawlinson made a footnote here saying that perhaps the reference should have been to mosquitoes. I rather believe that it is on account of the cold that the regions which lie under the bear, now that's a reference to the northern regions, the bear is a reference to the constellation, are without inhabitants. Such then are the accounts given of this country, the sea coast of the Black Sea, whereof Megabasis was now employed in subjecting to the Persians. And that's from Herodotus' Histories, Book 5, chapters 9 and 10. And he's writing of a time a little before his own. Oh, I'm sorry, a little before the, um, the Persian invasion of Greece. And that's where he is in his narrative of his history before he describes Istria, which was from his own observation and his own visit there. But the Persians did conquer the circle of the Black Sea from the Caucasus Mountains and conquer the Scythians and subject the Thracians who lived north of Greece. And they did that as a, um, before their invasion of Greece. They did that in order to cut off the Greek supply of wood for shipping, which was very important to Greece. There were, in some classical writings, mythical people called Hyperboreans, a word which comes from the Greek phrase which Herodotus uses here, meaning under the bear, or the constellation of stars, better known today from the Latin term Ursa Major, is also in Ursa Minor, which was in the northern sky. The word Boreas in Greek meant north. We shall address the so-called Hyperboreans at length in a later segment, in two later segments of this series, actually. Later in the series, we shall see that Strabo independently describes, because he's not citing Herodotus, a people named the Sigini, who dwelt near the Caspian Sea. That word is very, very familiar to the word Herodotus. It's very, very similar, I'm sorry, to the word Herodotus uses here, Siginahi. And very strikingly, Strabo's description of the Sagini who dwell near the Caspian Sea matches perfectly these Siginahi of Herodotus who dwelt north of the Danube and who were, as they say, colonists of the Medes. 
So Strabo unwittingly verifies Herodotus' statements here concerning the Siganahi. Now, if the Ligurians, because the Ligurians, by all accounts, they dwelt in the Alps a little closer to the French side than um, what we know as Etruria, Etruria being north of Rome, the land of the Etruscans. The Ligurians dwelt somewhat north and west of that, generally. If the Ligurians use that word Siganahi to, to designate traders, it may well be that the Siganahi had first traveled down the Danube River in search of trade. That, that's conjecture on my part, but there is a possible connection. So it is apparent that Central Europe, which only five centuries later was populated by so many Germans that Rome could not subdue it. Central Europe was quite sparsely inhabited in the time of Herodotus. And those few who did dwell there are said to have come from media, even though Herodotus himself couldn't understand how or why. In some degree, it has been made evident here already in part one of this essay that both Chimerians and Scythians, being one and the same people, originated in and around northern media. We will establish that to an even greater degree later on. Herodotus's account of the small horses found north of the Danube is corroborated somewhat by archaeology. For example, the horses found in the burials of something called the Urnfield culture. And we could see the um, Wikipedia site for their article on the Urnfield culture. Those horses were found to be a mere 1.25 meters tall at the shoulders on average. That's not even 50 inches. It's four feet and, and one and a quarter inches or something like that. Mentioning the Urnfield culture gives us an opportunity to um, make a side note here and to mention archaeological findings designated as cultures in general. Many people think that the identification of such so-called cultures can somehow refute the historical records which record our origins. Nothing can be further from the truth. Simply because people may have occupied an area before another group was found there, does not mean that those first people are ancestors of the newer group. Predecessors are not necessarily ancestors, and archaeology should shed light upon aspects of the historical record, or even perhaps reveal certain things that weren't well recorded. But it cannot somehow disprove or rewrite the historical record by itself. 
archaeology cannot do that. We should not attempt to use archaeology to do that because we are abusing archaeology in that attempt. Many so-called cultures identified by archaeologists have only a few relics. Sometimes some of those cultures they like to talk about, especially in Europe, sometimes they define such a culture when they discover a few stone tools. And they use stone tools as records that somebody existed there, and they label it as such and such a culture. And that's quite frequent in European archaeology. Some other cultures left a more lasting legacy of burials and artifacts, which can be identified somewhat more definitively, which can enhance our understanding of our recorded history, but they can't replace it with some other story. There is no doubt that many tribes in periods of warmer climates may have ventured north in search of new lands. The Greeks did it all the time. That's why they were on the Black Sea. Raw materials, hunting grounds, or even seeking a new home because of political pressure. Yet none of these settlements in northern Europe, none of them had any long-term durability in the northern regions until the final settlements of the Germanic tribes recorded after the beginning of the Roman Empire here in our classical histories. And as we shall see from these records, even those tribes were highly nomadic and westerly moving until the 5th or 6th centuries AD. And some of them even beyond that. There were tribes coming from Asia invading Germania, the Slavic tribes, all the way up to the 11th century AD. The idea that there were large populations of Germans in the far north in the prehistoric period is absolutely unfounded. It's also absolutely impossible. There's no infrastructure that would have ever been found in the Ice Age, which existed in northern Europe until the first couple of centuries before Christ, to support large populations of people. Where's the infrastructure? It's not there. There were not large populations of Germans living in the extreme cold of that period. That's crazy. That's the pipe dreams of those looking for an Aryan homeland somewhere where there never was one. The idea that there were large populations of Germans in the far north in the prehistoric period is absolutely unfounded. In the northwest, where we find the British Isles and those areas warmed by the ocean currents, settlement began by sea from the Mediterranean at a much earlier time, and they were able to settle 
the, the coastlands of Northwest Europe to a great extent because of the warmer weather created by the ocean currents. But Central Europe was generally inhospitable and barren of any large populations as the earliest Greek and Roman writers have described. There may have been larger settlements there at diverse times, but nothing which can be shown to have endured for greater periods of time. And the tribes of people known to dwell there in modern times are shown by these historical records to be relatively recent inhabitants. What also ascertains the relatively recent settlement of Central Europe is simply common sense. As this series progresses, we shall see even further evidence that the Greeks and Romans knew of the Norse. They were exploring and settling it, but met no opposition there. When those Malaysians founded their colonies, their cities along the Danube that are described in the classical histories, when the Greeks founded their cities along the coasts of the Black Sea, they didn't fight wars to make those colonies. They moved into empty territory. You're going to tell me there were hordes of Germans in the north who weren't hanging out at the seashore? Come on. Look at Panama City. Look at the shores of Australia. Where does everybody live? Everybody lives on the seashore. Look at southern France. Look at the Jersey Shore. The Greeks and Romans suffered no invasions from the north until after the 5th century BC. And then it was on. Then the Gauls and, and, and the Scythians, and that they were constantly trying to invade. It would seem foolish that the Germanic people, who have advanced beyond all others in the sciences, in recent centuries, would sit on their asses in the cold of the north for so many thousands of years without somewhat sooner thinking of coming south out of the cold. In truth, they were not there. But as the historical records attest, they migrated into Europe from the Near East from Mesopotamia in waves beginning with the Cimmerians in the early 7th century BC or about 240 years before Herodotus was writing. In the New Encyclopedia Britannica, 15th edition, in volume 3 of the Micropedia, there is an article entitled Cimmerian which follows many of the mistakes which Herodotus and others also follow concerning the origin of the Cimmerians by insisting that they should be distinguished from the Scythians. And the article states, and, and that was Herodotus's biggest mistake concerning the Cimmerians, where we've shown from ancient, ancient Assyrian inscriptions that the Scythians, the Sacae, the Cimmerians were all one and the same people, without a doubt. 
The article states that ancient writers sometimes confuse them with the Scythians. Well, the article's making the same mistake. Yet it has been shown here that the Cimmerians were indeed the Scythians by their Akkadian, by their Assyrian name. The article ends by stating of certain archaeological remains that perhaps the western branch of the Cimmerians, who, under fresh Scythian pressure, eventually invaded the Hungarian plain and survived there until about 500 B.C. While it is true that, as the article also relates, the Cimmerians are no longer mentioned in contemporary historical accounts of the Greeks after they departed from Anatolia. This is more likely due to confusion over names rather than to their disappearance. And later Greek historians did indeed relate certain Germanic tribes and equate them with the Cimmerians, which we shall see. But there was a um, 400-year period where they, the Cimmerians were more or less more or less lost after the time of Herodotus. The name ceased to exist. The people were called Scythians, Galatahi. It's the failure of the Encyclopedia Britannica writers to recognize that. We will continue to demonstrate that here. So this is likely due to confusion over names and, and ignorance over names, rather than to the disappearance of the Cimmerians. The Cimmerians did not disappear on the Hungarian plains. The period from 600 to 500 BC is the era generally proposed by archaeologists for the beginning of the spread of the so-called Celtic Latin culture throughout Western Europe. Some sources place that spread even later, and the Encyclopedia Britannica says that Latin culture originated in the mid-5th century BC when Celts came into contact with Greek and Etruscan influences from south of the Alps. Well, 450 BC is also only a few short years before the spread of the Galatahi into the Ligurian and Etruscan lands of the Alps and northern Italy, as Livy, in his History of Rome, and other historians describe them. Sometime after Herodotus, by the time of Aristotle, about a century later, as attested to, by the lexicographers of the ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott Greek-English lexicon, the word Galatahi began to be used. Herodotus never used it. Aristotle is the first recorded use of it. It shall be fully illustrated, as this essay progresses, that before the time of the historian Polybius, the word Galatahi began to be used of those tribes which appeared north of the Alps in the west and north of Greece and Thrace in the east in the lands which Herodotus had earlier called Scythia. Scythia, along with Scythian, 
after that time, were only used of the Scythian tribes of Asia, the tribes to the east of the Tanais River and in the lands north of the Caucasus Mountains. The Tanais River is the river that empties into the Black Sea, the very northerly portion where the Crimea is, is located. Yet the origin of the word Galatahi, even though it appears in Greek literature in the 4th century BC at the time of Aristotle, the origin of the word Galatahi has not, so far as I have seen, and I've read Polybius and all the earlier writers who used it, but it's not been sufficiently explained by the Greeks where they got the word from. Theodore Siculus only repeats a myth concerning Heracles and a supposed son named Galates, from whom they were fabled to have sprung, and the Greeks were um, keen on making myths about the origins of people. They are the vain genealogies that Paul refers to in his epistle to Titus. It may be conjectured that the Scythians of the north, since they were previously called by the Greeks galactophagi, meaning milk-fed, and hippemalgi. Hippemalgi means mare milkers or drinkers of horse milk. Since the Scythians were called those names by the Greeks, it's possible, and it's my belief, but I can't prove it, of course, that the name Galatahi eventually evolved for these people because of the word Gala, which is the Greek word for milk. The Latin word rendered gall in English, is actually Gali in Latin, and may have come to them from the Greek, from Gala and Galatahi. Yet, perhaps coincidentally, the word Gallus is Latin for bucket, and we need one of those to get us some milk, right? That might be just a coincidence. After informing us of the distinction between Celts and Galatahi, which we went into and, and quoted at length in part one of this essay, Didor Siculus tells us of the Galatahi that some men say that it was they who in ancient times overran all Asia and were called Timerians. When Theodorus Siculus says, some men say, that's because his library of history was actually a compilation, his own compilation, from all of the hundreds of historical writings that were available to him at his time, most of which are actually lost to us now. There are hundreds of historians of antiquity whose work did not survive to us. Some men say that it was they, the Galatahi, 
who in ancient times overran all Asia and were called Cimmerians, time having slightly corrupted the word into the name of Cimbrians, as they are now called. And there was a tribe of Galatahi in Germany at Theodorus's time called the Cimbrians, by the Romans especially. And Diodorus goes on to relate how tribes of these Galatahi once captured Rome, as Livy and others also relate had happened about 390 BC, actually maybe a couple of years before, maybe 393, and how they later plundered the Temple of Delphi in Greece in 279 BC. Afterward, certain tribes of them invading Anatolia were defeated by King Attalus I of Pergamus and negotiated to settle the land which became known as Galatia in Anatolia. These in modern Turkey, right? That's cognate with or, or equivalent to Anatolia, I should say. These Galatians became mixed with the Greeks and so were called Greco-Gauls. That's especially true of the cities in southern Galatia. And it is these Galatians for whom Paul wrote his epistle. Diodorus then adds of the Galatahi, and who, as their last accomplishment, had destroyed many large Roman armies, referring to the Roman wars with the Cimbri. In the Loeb Classical Library edition, of Diodorus Siculus, translated by C.H. Oldfather. A footnote at that very passage reads, this is Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 32, Paragraphs 4 and 5. A footnote reads, Much has been written to show that the Germanic tribe of the Cimbrians who threatened Italy shortly before 100 B.C., were belated Cimmerians who first entered Asia Minor in the 7th century B.C. The Cimbri, after several astounding victories, were defeated by the Romans about 101 B.C. Strabo also tells us that they were the Cimmerians, and he later calls them Germans who with another kindred top tribe, the Sugambri, were the best known of the Germanic tribes. Strabo, Geography, Book 7, Chapter 2. As the Germanic, meaning Galatahi, Cimmerian, Scythian, as the Germanic tribes grew and divided, and as the Greeks and Romans became more intimately knowledgeable of them, they were referred to less generally and by more specific tribal names. And that's natural. I mean, you could never visit Canada, let's say, and all Canada, all of the people in Canada are Canadians. And, and then you visit Canada and spend some time there and become acquainted with the people and realize that there's a huge difference between the French in, in, in Montreal and the English in Ontario or whatever. 
and and you start using more specific names for them because you're more familiar with them. It, it's the same thing in America. You go to New Jersey and and um, find loud ass Yankees, and go to Tennessee and find nice peaceful rednecks. I, I'm just kind of joking. But once you're more intimately familiar with people, and as they grow and branch out and cover a greater geographical area, the names become more specialized. So earlier in Greek and, and Roman writing, they were Scythians, they were Sake, but as their populations grew north of the Danube, as they became a much more formidable people, as more Sake and Chimerians and came from Asia, they acquired more specialized names. That's just the natural progression of things. For instance, Strabo later enumerates the tribes of those Galatahi who settled in Phrygia. And Herodotus and, and, and earlier, well, her, not Herodotus, it was too, it was too um, late for him, but earlier historians, Polybius perhaps, and, and others didn't break it down so far as Strabo could have because Strabo's writing 200 years after they settled in Phrygia. By Strabo's time, Strabo died in 25 AD, by that time, the Romans had already conquered Gaul. They were very familiar with all the Gallic tribes by that time. And the, the Galatians were in Anatolia for 200 years, so the Greeks had a much greater acquaintance with them than a Polybius or, or earlier writers. For instance, Strabo enumerates the tribes of those Galatahi who settled in Phrygia, and from Geography Book 12, he says that they are the Trachmi, the Talistobolgi, which are named after their leaders, whereas the third, the Tectosagas, is named after the tribe in Celtica. Let's examine that name a second, that name Tectosagas. T-E-K-T-O-S-A-G-A-S in Greek. There we must notice the presence of that saga syllable, which is present in so many names related to the Scythian tribes. As we have mentioned in part one of this essay, Sakasani, Masagete, um, our Sakes, which is the, the, the um, traditional Scythian name for their kings, and the Parthians, too. And, and they all have that S-A-G-A or S-A-K-A syllable in them. So we see that in Tectosagas, one of the Galatian tribes of Anatolia, and Strabo says that there's also a tribe of the Galatahi with that name in Celtica, and that can be corroborated. There were. The Tectosagas had also occupied a district near the Pyrenees Mountains, 
and are said to be a division of the Volcae. Perhaps that comes from simply the simple word for folk. Of the Trachmi, Strabo says that this tribe settled near Pontus and Cappadocia in Anatolia and was the most powerful of the parts occupied by the Galatians. Herodotus was somewhat correct in stating that the Cimmerians were pushed out of their eastern European lands by the Scythians, even though the Scythians are just a later wave of the same people. As he himself later explains, in his own time, the inhabitants of the land of the north and west of the Black Sea and north of Thrace were Scythians. And he called the lands north of the Danube Scythia. Yet this is not when the Cimmerians had destroyed Phrygia. They had already done that around 680 B.C. While they were en route to Europe, as explained in part one of this essay, 678, I think, might be more, um, more accurate. The original text of my essay said 700 B.C., which is okay, but a little, a little early. Rather, Herodotus, the, the tradition which Herodotus repeats helps to document the beginnings of a new westward push by the Caucasian or Indo-European, the Scythian tribes of Asia into Europe, of which those Scythians first called Cimmerians, but later called Galatahi and Celts by the Greeks, because as we see in Diodor Siculus, the early Galatahi who came into Celtica were confused by name with the Celts. They were the vanguard. And that movement of peoples from Asia into Europe, that movement of these Indo-Europeans, these Scythians from Asia into Europe, continued until the 5th century AD, and even perhaps a little beyond that. Because the, um, well, we'll talk about the Sarmatians and the Slavs at length at a later portion of this presentation. But a lot of them were actually Scythians as well, or related peoples. Other Indo-European tribes, such as the Greeks and Romans, had long occupied Southern Europe. Certain of the Slavic branches of the race had already occupied portions of Central and Northern Europe. Looking at this from the Genesis 10 perspective, the Thracians, the Ionian Greeks, as opposed to the other tribes of the Greeks, were related to the Mosci, the Tabarni, the, the, the Medes, who we have evidence, gave us the Slavic tribes. And the southern Slavs have long been separated from the other Slavs historically. Upon passing into Europe, the Cimmerians would not only settle the Crimea and the region north of Trace, but would follow the Danube River into Celtica and the Alps. So we see them identified by Strabo and Diodorus much later as Galatahi, leaving many settlements behind along the way. Spreading along the Alps from the Atlantic, from, I'm sorry, from the Adriatic 
all the way to Massalia, which is now modern Marseille. The Cimmerians then branched out into what are now Italy, France, and Iberia, diffusing the so-called Latin culture of the archaeological record. The Cimmerians becoming the Galatahi were the carriers of that culture, which had a, a, a mixed Scythian Greco-Roman element to it, and Etruscan. They became known to the Greeks of the West as Galatahi and to the Romans as Gauls. They didn't disappear and become extinct on the Hungarian plain as the as the Encyclopedia Britannica would wish. Strabo tells us that all of the Cisalpine Celts, which means the Celts on the Roman side of the Alps, had migrated from transalpine land, meaning the other side of the Alps. As we have already seen, the Greeks attest that the Galatahi were indeed Chimerians. When did they do that? We quoted Livy, and, and we will um, get into this further later on in this series. We quoted last, um, in, in part one of this presentation, we quoted Livy and his history of Rome and how he described the Gauls when they first started coming into the lands held by the Etruscans and Ligurians. In the last part, in the last decade or two of the um, 5th century BC, 420, 410 BC, 400 BC, in that area, Livy referred to them as a strange new race. <clears throat> there is no way that Rome was founded in 752 BC but that the people who became the Romans have a um, historical consciousness going back to the 12th century B.C. There is no way that they did not know who was living in the Alps or who was living on the other side of the Alps for 800 years. So it's pretty obvious that when Livy calls them a strange new race in relation to their invasion of the Etruscans and their, that their invasion of Rome itself in 390 B.C., that he wasn't indicating that these people weren't unknown to the Romans before that time. That for Livy to call them a strange new race, the Galatahi must have been unknown to the Romans before 400 BC, before they, or 420 BC, or whenever they had first came into the lands of the Etruscans. It should not be a wonder that the Cimmerians could destroy Phrygia, cross into Thrace, as we have it recorded, and be found 
in what today is France, a mere hundred years later, or perhaps before 500 BC. The entire course of the Danube is not quite 1,800 miles. And from the sources of that river to the Pyrenees, which separate France and Spain, there are about 500 more miles. So it's about 2,300 miles from the, from the Black Sea to the Pyrenees. The lands west of the Rhine and south of the Alps are much more inviting to settlement than those to the north and the east. And even up to the time of Julius Caesar, the Germanic tribes were forcing their way west of the Rhine and south of the Alps. For instance, in um, the Gallic War, Caesar complains that in a few years, all the natives, those who were already settled in Gaul, west of the Rhine, will have been driven forth from the borders of Gaul, and all the Germans will have crossed the Rhine. For there can be no comparison between the Gallic and German territory. Germany, when we read all of the accounts of the Roman invasions, the Roman um, attempts to subdue Germany, Germany was filled with swamps and very thick forests and had very little natural resources, unless you count water and wood, and had very little arable land. All of the Scythian and, and, and Galatahi, all of the tribes that were coming into it from the east were trying like hell to get out of it from the south and the west. And bearing in mind in Julius Caesar's quote that the distinction between Gaul and German is a late Roman distinction because the Gauls were the same people, the Galatahi. Strabo said of the Germans and the Galatahi, which he distinguishes, although he tells us that the Germans are Galatahi in geography in Book 7, Chapter 1. Strabo says that they migrate with ease. They do not till the soil or even store up food, but live in small huts that are merely temporary structures and they live for the most part off their flocks as the nomads do so that in imitation of the nomads they load their household belongings onto their wagons and with their beasts turn whithersoever they think best then Strabo proceeds to explain that other German tribes to the north are even more indigent among them, the Cherusky, the Caddy, the, the Kimbri, or Kimbrians, and others. Geography, Book 7, Chapter 1. This description of the Germanic tribes is much like that of Herodotus's, where Herodotus 
describes their Scythian forebears in his Histories, Book 1, Paragraph 216, and in Book 4, Paragraph 46. Herodotus said of the Scythians in his Histories, at 446, in part, and this is from the translation of G.C. Macaulay, by the Scythian race, one thing which is the most important of all human things has been found out more cleverly than by any other man of whom we know. But in other respects, I have no great admiration for them. And that most important thing which they have discovered is such that none can escape again who has come to attack them. And if they do not desire to be found, it is not possible to catch them. For they who have neither cities founded nor walls built, but all carry their houses with them and are mounted archers, living not by the plow, but by cattle, and whose dwellings are upon cars or wagons, these assuredly are invincible and impossible to approach. So the Scythians around the Black Sea in the time of Herodotus had no walls or no cities. They lived off their flocks and carried all of their belongings on wagons. Likewise, for Hundred years later, the Galatahi of the time of Strabo lived in the very same manner, in their wagons. So did the American pioneers as they settled the Wild West. The distance from Boston to San Francisco by modern highway is very nearly 3,000 miles. That's much farther than the distance from the Black Sea to the Pyrenees Mountains. And only 43 years after the West was open to Anglo-America with the Louisiana Purchase, there were already enough Americans settled in California that they could begin to wrest control of the territory from Mexico in the Bear Flag Revolt, 1846. So if Americans in wagons can cross the country in 43 years and settle most of the interior, then the Scythians can cross, or the Cimmerians can cross the Bosporus and be in France in a hundred years, the same way. The American pioneers of the West had at least as much resistance from the hostile Indian tribes than anything the Cimmerians faced in land that was mostly vacant. And the American pioneers had no great technological advantage. With the exception of the black powder rifle, their technology was pretty much the same as the Cimmerians, their ancestors. Moving through the Danube Valley, the Cimmerians, or Galatahi, had left many settlements along the way where they encountered other white tribes who had long inhabited those regions, those settlements are recorded. Foremost among these were the Thracians, the Illyrians, the Malaysians. They already had 
many colonies on the Danube and on the shores of the Black Sea, other Greeks who were living in those regions. And then in the Alps, the Etruscans, the Ligurians, and other tribes, such as the Raetians, whom Livy attests were descended from the Etruscans. So the Romans and the Greeks, they didn't just sit in, in their southern coastlands. They were exploring and colonizing the lands north of them without opposition, without any records of troubles until the Germanic tribes show up in the 5th century, 4th century B.C. Then they had all kinds of trouble. The Phrygians in Anatolia were themselves a colony of the Thracians, according to Strabo and other ancient writers. They are the Gepetite branch of the white Adamic race, which we can roughly identify with the Slavs today. The Illyrians were apparently of the stock of the Trojans, and Strabo tells us that in his time, there was still a tribe of the Illyrians called Dardan the name by which Homer called the Trojans. 600 years, I'm sorry, 500 years after Strabo, the great emperor Justinian is said to have been an Illyrian from that same tribe of the Dardans. So they were known in um, what we would call today Albania, which is where they inhabited for the most part, they were known there until the 5th century, 6th century AD. Tales of Miletus, the city's most famous inhabitant and one of the earliest of the famous Greek philosophers, was said by Herodotus to be of Phoenician descent. The Malaysians also settled in Iberia, and they were also, along with the Danans, among the earliest inhabitants of Ireland. The Etruscans were professed to be of the stock of the Lydians of Anatolia, and therefore they were Shemites. They were Semitic. They were the Lud of Genesis chapter 10. These tribes that were first in the Danube region they are responsible for the earlier tumulus culture, the Urnfield culture, the Hallstatt culture, or at least its early stages, and other so-called archaeological cultures, Pilony, Lusatian, which are identified by archaeologists, the Vistula River cultures, The Pilony culture, what is now Hungary and Slovakia, these same areas were said to have been inhabited by Greeks, Etruscans, Raetians, who came from the Etruscans, Ligurians. These people are all identifiable in history. They're all traceable back to the tribes of Genesis chapter 10. So there were forebears in lands later held, that there were predecessors, I should say, in lands later considered to be Germanic 
but they weren't our ancestors. The um, tumulus culture is almost certainly identifiable with the Phrygians and the Thracians. The Phrygians of Anatolia left behind numerous such tumulus burials. And as we said in our first presentation of the series, the Thracians were Europe's original mound builders, without a doubt. The Hebrew Bible puts the Thracians in Europe. Genesis chapter 10 at least as early as 2500 B.C., along with the Ionians and the Cartesians. After the 5th century, along the lower Danube River, there are found all along the Danube River many tribes of the Galatahi, they didn't come from Gaul. A lot of um, New Age historical reinterpreters that they um, who, who don't really understand the actual classical records imagine that the that the Celts came east, and that's simply not true. The Galatahi started in the east as Scythians, picked up the name Galatahi from the Greeks along the way ended up in Celtica and eventually accepted Roman culture and the Roman names for their own identity. That's historical. Strabo mentions both the Illyrian and Thracian tribes and all the tribes of the Celtic or other peoples that are mingled with these as far as Greece, which are south of the Ister. Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 1. Among them, he lists the Scordisci Galatahi of the Balkans, intermingled with the Illyrian and Thracian tribes. Geography, Book 7, Chapter 2. Diodorus Siculus mentions those same people and that same predicament in his Library of History, Books 34 and 35. And Strabo mentions the Touristae, the Tauriski, and Norici, the Trerans, <clears throat> the Trerans, or Treres, who Strabo, in turn, identifies as Cimmerians and Thracians. One place he calls them Cimmerians, another place he calls them Thracians. They're mentioned in Strabo's Geography, Book 1, Chapter 3, Book 13, Chapter 1, Book 14, Chapter 1, where Strabo cites Calanus, an elegaic poet of the mid-7th century B.C., and probably living around the same time as Archilochus and Homer, who said that the Treres were Cimmerians. The Yapodes were said to be a mixture of Celts and Illyrians. Geography, Book 7, Chapter 5. And the Boii, the famous Bohemians, of historical times, the Boii, whom Strabo says were mingled with the Thracians. Book 7, Chapter 3. 
the Cimmerians being Scythians, and as Josephus, the biblical and the ancient Assyrian records demonstrate, therefore, being descended from those many thousands of Israelites who were deported and resettled by the Assyrian Empire. Here is surely evidence of the fulfillment of biblical prophecies, such as those found at Genesis 9.27 and Isaiah 66.19. Genesis 9.27 says very succinctly that Japheth shall dwell in the tents of Shem. That was fulfilled in Europe. It was never fulfilled any time after Genesis chapter 11. It was only fulfilled from the time that the tribes of Israelites came to Europe, where they had Jephetai predecessors. Isaiah 66, 19 is a prophecy about the Assyrian captives, the ancient Israelites that the Assyrians took captive. And I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape them unto the nations to Tarshish, Pol, and Lud that draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the isles afar off that have not heard my fame. Tarshish is in southern Spain. It's identified as Tartessus in ancient Greek writings, including Herodotus, who called it an ancient trading town the Tarshish of the Bible. Pul is identified with an area of Assyria, and that's fine. That's where the Israelites were taken. But Lud are the Semitic Lydians of Genesis chapter 10. Lydia in western Anatolia, and we saw last week that the Cimmerians crossed Anatolia and took Sardis from the Lydians. Yahweh said he would send the captives to Lydia. Through Tubal and Javan. Well, Tubal was identified through the prophets, through the words of other prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, to be a land on the Black Sea at the time of those prophets. And that's where the Cimmerians and Scythians went. And Javan are the Ionian Greeks in all ancient records. There's no doubt of the connection between Javan and the Ionians. And that's the, the, the Cimmerians and the Scythians and the Galatahi within just a couple of hundred years all invaded Ionia. And they all stretch themselves. Lydia is in Anatolia, but the Etruscans are also Lydians. And the Galatahi poured into the land of Etruria. And they went all the way to, through Celtica, through France, into Iberia. 
where they were called Celts and Galatahi. In all the ancient accounts of Iberia and the wars of the Romans for the Iberians, there were Celts there and there were Galatahi there. The, the Carthaginians were using Celts and Galatahi from Iberia as mercenaries in their wars against the Romans. All these places where Isaiah said the children of Israel would be sent, the Galatahi and the Scythians appear within 200 years. Within 200 years. It is these Thracian, Illyrian, and Malaysian tribes, and especially the later two, the Illyrians and the Malaysians, since they had descended from Israelite tribes who had, at a very early time, migrated away from Palestine or away from the Hebrews in Egypt by sea, and therefore they were more closely related to the Cimmerian Scythians who along with the Phoenicians especially, and the Danans, who had at a much earlier time colonized the coasts of northern and western Europe by sea. It is those people who are often identified as proto-Celts by archaeologists and anthropologists. And together with the Cimmerian Scythian Galatahi, and even later Scythians, Sakans, who migrated from Asia into Europe, they eventually formed all the white nations of Europe as we know them today. And substantiation for those assertions are all throughout the historical essays at Christogenia. Long after the initial dispersion of the Cimmerians, Galatahia found raiding the countries to the south from their homes in Germanic lands of the north, north of the Danube. And those raids lasted well into the 2nd century B.C. From 279 to 276 B.C., the Galatahi destroyed the Macedonian army, raided Macedonia, sacked Delphi. From just before this time until about 210 B.C., the Galatahi ruled all of Thrace. All of Thrace had come to be dominated by the Galatahi. Strabo's. I'm sorry, Diodorus Siculus's Library of History, Book 22 and Book 30, record these things. It was during this time that the tribes of the Galatahi had crossed back into Anatolia, and after being defeated by the king of Pergamus, settled the land which became known as Galatia. By 168 BC, the Galatahi from the north of the Danube were being hired by the Macedonians as mercenaries in their wars against Rome. But before the 5th century... The Greeks didn't know the Galatahi, didn't know them at all, because they simply weren't there. 
because Herodotus said that the lands north of the Danube were virtually, virtually uninhabited. The Cimbri, in their later wars against the Romans, fought with them at Noria, which is the modern new market in Austria, and at Arasio, which is the modern orange in Gaul. And the Cimbri, by Diodorus Siculus and by Strabo, are described as being giant-like in appearance and unexcelled in feats of strength. And they were said to number, by Diodorus Siculus, 400,000 at one battle against the Romans, although Plutarch, in his record of of that battle, says 300,000. That's still a pretty considerable sum in a land, and we're talking about the second century BC, in a land that was uninhabited, virtually uninhabited, 250 years before that time, maybe 300. The footnotes to these passages in the Loeb Classical Library editions are what I am citing here from Diodorus Siculus's books 34, 35, 36, and 37. The eventual establishment of Roman frontiers along the Rhine and the Danube, which didn't happen until after the time of Julius Caesar, checked the encroachment of the Germanic tribes upon the more fruitful lands of the south and the west for several centuries. The appearance of so many Galatahi in lands said to be German without any recorded conflict among the peoples there, except where later incited by Rome, would certainly be odd, unless the Galatahi were indeed the Germans, and they were, as Strabo tells us, Geography Book 7, Chapter 1. And Strabo said they were all kinsmen, Geography Book 4, Chapter 4, and they certainly were. We, we are going to read that passage from Strabo. The whole race, which is now called both Gallic and Galactic, Remember, Strabo's writing up until his death in 25 AD. So, Gallic is the Latin term Gaul, from which we have Gaul, and Galatic is the Greek term, which is usually Galatahi. The whole race, which is now called both Gallic and Galatic, is war-mad and both high-spirited and quick for battle although otherwise simple and not ill-mannered. And therefore, if roused, they come together all at once for the struggle, both openly and without circumspection, so that for those who wish to defeat them by stratagem, they become easy to deal with. In fact, irritate them when, where, or by what chance pretext you please, and you have them ready to risk their lives with nothing to help them in the struggle but might and daring. Whereas, if coaxed, they so easily yield to considerations of utility that they lay hold 
not only of training in general, but of language studies as well. As for their might, it arises partly from their large physique and partly from their numbers. And on account of their trait of simplicity and straightforwardness, they easily come together in great numbers because they always share in the vexation of those of their neighbors whom they think wrong. At the present time, they are all at peace since they have been enslaved and are living in accordance with the commands of the Romans who captured them. But it is from the early times that I am taking this account of them and also from the customs that hold fast to this day among the Germans. For these peoples are not only similar in respect to their nature and their governments, but they are also kinsmen to one another. And further, they live in country that has a common boundary, since it is divided by the River Rhine, and most of its regions are similar, though Germany is more to the north. If the southern regions be judged with reference to the southern, and also the northern with reference to the northern, but it is also on account of this trait that their migration easily takes place. For they move in droves, army and all, or rather they make off households and all, what, whenever they are cast out by others stronger than themselves. Again, the Romans conquered these people much more easily than they did the Iberians. In fact, the Romans began earlier and stopped later carrying on war with the Iberians, but in the meantime defeated all these. I mean all the peoples who live between the Rhine and the Pyrenees Mountains. That was considered Celtica. It's modern France and a good portion of western Germany, along with Belgium, Holland, the Low Countries. For since the former were wont to fall upon their opponents all at once and in great numbers, they were defeated all at once. But later would husband, meaning the Iberians who took longer to defeat, but later would husband their resources and divide their struggles, carrying on war in the manner of brigands, different men at different times and in separate divisions. Now, although they are all fighters by nature, they are better as cavalry than as infantry. And the best cavalry, cavalry force the Romans have comes from these people, meaning the Iberians. However, it is always those who live more to the north and along the ocean coast that are more warlike. So speaking of the Galatahi in Germany, east of the Rhine, and in Celtica, west of the Rhine, Strabo says they are all kinsmen to one another. They are all related. And we will see much further evidence of that as this series unfolds. Throughout the Germania, the Roman historian Tacitus attempts to distinguish Germans from Gauls based upon language and lifestyle.
Yet these differences may easily be accounted for by other reasons. In the rugged north, unfriendly to agriculture, tribes would by necessity adopt a lifestyle quite different than that of the tribes which inhabit the more arable, more temperate areas in the west and south of Europe. So you can't separate peoples based on lifestyle. Their lifestyle is an adjustment to their, their conditions and their environment. As for language, centuries of separation during a gradual sojourn from Asia and the differing influences of various neighboring tribes, such as the Thracians, the Illyrians, through commerce, politics, intermingling, etc., or a lack of influence, surely may help to account for the many dialects which developed amongst the Germanic peoples. This may also account for differences in religious beliefs found among these tribes, although their most basic beliefs seem to have been at least somewhat consistent. One does not have to investigate at length to see great evidence of these same things in modern times. Pacatus goes so far as to postulate that Gauls, who he purports are a race distinct from the Germans, had once migrated east into Germany. So we see how old that argument is. He made it in the Germania, chapter 28. Yet this is contrary to the testimony of all the earlier historians. We have to bear in mind that Tacitus was a Roman statesman and a, a historian of Rome, but he wasn't he, he was more of an analyst and a chronicler. He wasn't a historian in the academic sense by any means. Tacitus goes so far as to postulate that Gauls, who he purports are a race distinct from the Germans, had once migrated east into Germany. Yet this is contrary to the testimony of the earlier historians, Strabo, Diodorus, and it is also contrary to the archaeological record. When we trace these archaeological cultures, the Hallstatt culture, although errantly attributed by many archaeologists to have belonged exclusively to the Celts, is certainly earlier and preponderates much further east than the Latin culture. So that's the opposite of any imagined migration east of Gauls. That's the opposite that you would expect if that migration pattern were true. It is not true. Surely the testimonies of the early historians are correct, and the Galatahi, the people formerly known as Cimmerians of the East, and later also as Celts in the West, spread all through Europe as far as modern Portugal, yet were later divided into Gauls and Germans by the Romans and their conquests. The next parts of this essay shall discuss later post-Cimmerian waves of the Scythians into Europe, going back again to the 6th century B.C. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. Tomorrow afternoon, 2 p.m. New York time, Sven Longshanks, 
and Christianity in Europe. 